We're very, very lucky that we've got uh, Emma-Jane Kirby uh, with us uh, this afternoon. Emma-Jane has been um, a, a foreign correspondent at the BBC since 2001, does that sound roughly right? Roughly. Roughly. And um, she's reported from uh, many, many countries in that time, um, probably some uh, of those countries where uh, you were from. Um, and we love Emma Jane because she was actually uh, a fellow here, a journalist fellow, a BBC journalist fellow, back in 2010, I realised to my horror. It felt like yesterday. And um, has kept in contact um, ever since. But the reason we wanted her to come back this afternoon was she wrote this rather wonderful book called um, The Optician of Lampedusa, which she's now um, going to talk to you about. Uh, about the way you can report the migration issue uh, in, in different ways. Uh, but I'm sure um, she'd be happy to talk more widely if there are questions about being her experience of being a foreign reporter. But the, the focus of uh, the talk today is on this really wonderful book that she wrote, which is now uh, a bestseller. So, over to you. Have we did. Thank you very much. Feels lovely to be back here. Really does. Never wanted to leave. Um, so the first thing I ought to tell you about, about the optician of Lampedusa, is that it's based on a true story. The optician of Lampedusa is a real man, uh, a very shy, very retiring man. Um, it's a real island, obviously. It's uh, been the focus of the migration movement for many, many years, uh, way before the Arab Spring. Um, and it's based on a BBC report that I did. I'd been reporting the migration crisis for about two years when I first met the optician of Lampedusa in 2015. And I'd gone back to Lampedusa to try and find a new way of reporting the crisis because we were aware that compassion fatigue had just set in. People were hearing the words Mediterranean migration and switching off. They had just seen too many images. They were saturated with the images of people on overcrowded rubber boats, and Fatima's story was becoming the same as Mohammed's story, the same as Saeed's story. They couldn't tell the difference anymore, and were saying, oh, I've heard that, and switching off. So we needed to find a new angle to pull people back um, and focus again on what is one of the most important stories of our age. So the new angle we came up with is, rather than interviewing the migrants themselves, was to actually interview ordinary Italians who had been affected by the migration crisis. So for a radio series, um, I interviewed uh, five different people, uh, a gravedigger, whose job obviously was to bury those who didn't make it, a hospital director, a wonderful lady who was a housewife who'd become a, a chef in a migrant soup kitchen, uh, and then a carpenter, a very, very religious man, who had decided to make crosses from the uh, driftwood of the boats, the wrecked boats that the migrants came up in, and he would offer them to the migrants themselves, and then he gave them to all the churches in Sicily. One of those was actually then commissioned after that report by the British Museum. It's now one of the only bits of living history the British Museum has. Um, and then there was the optician of Lampedusa, and on the face of it, he didn't have anything to do with the migration crisis at all. He would see the migrants around him, Every day when he was running, he would see them on the supermarket uh, opposite his little shop, and he would feel pity for them, but probably, like all of us, thought, you know, poor things, not my problem. It's, it's, he just didn't see them as, as his problem. After all, he was an optician. What, what could he do? So why did he become part of our series? He took a holiday. 
He took a little boating holiday with some friends and his wife to reward himself for a hard summer's work. Um, and I'm going to play you the original report so you hear what happened to him. So apologies for the poor quality of sound there. 23 years in radio, James, but Sorry. never mind. <laughs> never mind. Sorry about Blame that. <laughs> I was blaming myself. I made the recording. Um, but we had an incredible response uh, to that piece of radio, to, to the whole series, but particularly to that one, because I think um, people were saying, for the first time, we have seen the crisis. For the first time, uh, it's become real to us. Uh, the, the sort of names were coming through the numbers. It was humanised for them because people could imagine themselves in that boat. People could imagine that they'd taken a holiday and had then found themselves in that situation. And I admit, I was completely haunted by his story. He said, you know, I never wanted to tell this story again. I promised I wouldn't. And he didn't want to tell me it. He said, I know that you'll be haunted by it. It was one of the reasons he didn't want me uh, uh, to take it down and to tell it again. But... Um, I was lucky enough to win the Bio Prize, the International Bio Prize, with the report. Uh, and in the audience was a French publisher, um, and she was haunted by the story as well, and asked me to write it for her. And so I did, um, in the book form. I didn't know how I was going to write it, and David and I were just talking about this over lunch. I knew from the start that I was never going to write it as reportage, and I wasn't going to write it as a biography. Um, the optician of Lampedusa, Camille Mena, is as boring as, as us, you know, he's just a very ordinary man with um, ordinary concerns in his life. That was never going to work. And it sort of just really spilled onto the page in, as a narrative non-fiction, a non-fiction novel. The book reads like a novel, and I wanted it to read like that. I wanted it to tell it as a story. Um, almost because I wanted to lull the reader into a false sense of security, that what they're reading is just a story. And then you get a cold splash, you know, a big wave hits you when you realise that actually this is a real tragedy. 368 people died in this tragedy. All of this is, is true. Um, all the facts in it um, are true. He actually said to me, why do you want to list, hear this story and tell it, tell it again? I can barely believe it's happened. How can you? How can you believe it? So I really wanted to play on that. And also, you know... Um, David was saying, as a factual historian and, and as a journalist, he wants to know, as so many journalists do, which bits are real, which bits aren't, which bits it's a blurring of, of fact and, and fiction. And uh, I always say to readers, when you open the book, you get on board that boat with the optician. You take his place, as it were, at the helm. Um, and it's up to you to choose whether what you're seeing is real or whether it's just a story. Because so many of us go through life seeing very unpleasant things and quickly turning away, um, partly to protect ourselves, partly because, like the optician, it's not our problem. We're just who we are. We can't deal with it. So I wanted really to play on that and to ask, are you ready to see this? There were obviously also very um, big literary overtones with that story. The, the man lost at sea, searching for meaning. The optician of Lampedusa did come from Naples. He moved to Lampedusa 25 years ago because he felt that in Lampedusa he had lost uh, his sense of purpose, his sense of direction. He'd lost um, his repère. How do you say repère, David? In, in English, his um, uh, points of reference. Points of orientation. Points yes, of, there we go. Points of reference. 
Yes, yes, yes. Um, and he'd come to Lampedusa to find meaning. Um, and obviously, that report, it's not just about a dramatic rescue at sea. It's also about one man's conscience awakening. His, the awakening of a moral conscience, of a political conscience, and above all, a humanitarian conscience, realizing that actually you can't turn your head away, that you know, he was somebody who didn't reach out, as many people on his island did with refugees. He didn't, because he didn't see it as his problem. And then suddenly he was in a situation where he was the only hand who could give help. Um, Although in the report, obviously, it's a factual news report, I name him, we need to know who he is. We need to know that he is Karamini Mena, that he's the only optician in Lampedusa. In the book, I take his name out. I thank him at, at the back um, in the acknowledgements, but he is just the optician of Lampedusa, and I did that because I really wanted us to put ourselves in his place. Everybody had said in the report they identified with him, so I wanted him to be a sort of everyman figure, to really push that idea of, what would we have done in that situation? Um, and it was also something that he said to me in my first interview with him. He said, it was me in the boat that day, but there will be another <coughs> boat tomorrow. What if I'm not on the sea? Who will be there? Will you be there? So again, I was uh, very much playing on that. Um, and of course, the, the idea that this is an optician of Lampedusa in the boat. He wasn't the doctor of Lampedusa, he wasn't the dentist, he wasn't the journalist of Lampedusa. He was the optician. So you have all those wonderful uh, images of vision, the man who chose not to see, who didn't want to see, um, <clears throat> and then the man who has his eyes forced open. Um, but first of all, obviously, I had to convince this shy and retiring man to let me write the book. Um, and I went back to Lampedusa to see him. And he was astonished that I'd won the bio prize for his report. He was very, very humbled and very touched. And he realized that people had understood his message. People had understood his story, um, how he had had this epiphany, uh, as it were. And so he trusted me. He said, you told that story. Tell it again. And I think that's the deal, really. I think that was the unspoken deal, that once you hear the optician's story, it is a kind of story that you pass on. Um, and he said, it, it must be heard. And I understand now that it, it must be heard. Um, and he gave me no prescription at all. He didn't say, you must write it in this way, in that way. We just went out to dinner together. And this time, his wife, who I'd been banned from talking to, because I'm sure she doesn't mind me saying, but she had a, a nervous breakdown after... Um, what had happened. They managed to save 47, but obviously they saw many, many, many more drown in front of them. Um, and we went out to dinner, and I never asked him to talk about, actually, that, um, what had happened again, but it's all he wanted to talk about. And I noticed that even in the restaurant, uh, he would talk about what had happened, about how he felt when he pulled that first hand, the first person from the water and he would reenact it and all the muscles and the sinews in his neck and his arms would pop and the veins would start throbbing in his temple and he was absolutely back in that moment and I saw for him that he was still haunted by it and I've often thought why did he let me write this book and I really do believe to push that metaphor a little bit more but you know an optician's job is to daily job is to make us see clearly you know it's to give us perfect vision and I think that's exactly um, what he wanted to do with this book the book was actually fatter previously I mean it's a sort of two-hour read in one sitting um, but it, it was quite a lot fatter 
um, I had got two or three chapters from the perspective of the migrants in there. Um, and one of those was, my, was one of my favourite chapters. I'd done a heck of a lot of research. I should tell you that everybody came from Eritrea, almost everybody. There are a couple of Somalians as well, but um, uh, Somalis as well, but most were, were from Eritrea. Um, so I'd gone to Eritrean, the Eritrean church. I don't know if anybody's ever been to an Eritrean mass. Four hours I sat there <laughs> at an Eritrean mass. Um, and I talked to a lot of uh, people who had had similar journeys, similar escapes, similar rescues. Um, and then I had to slash and burn those chapters. And I decided to do it. I felt terribly guilty doing it. But I decided to do it because I felt that to make the impact, to make this a really strong focus and to keep us in the, you know, behind the wheel, at the wheelhouse, as it were, with, with the optician, it had to just be from his perspective. It had to, we just had to look behind his glasses. Um, and so I, I uh, got rid of, of the, uh, the migrant voices, as, as it were, the actual characters of, of the migrants. Um, we do know, by the way, what happened in that tragedy from talking to survivors. Um, I just, so you know uh, the context. The terrible thing is this didn't happen miles out at sea, as we imagine, you know, miles and miles in international waters. This happened less than a kilometre, less than a kilometre from Lampedusa, from Europe's shores. Less than a kilometre. They were so close. The su surviving migrants have said that they came up on board and they were cheering because they could see the taillights of cars on the island. So they were watching that. And what happened was all the women and children came up from below deck to cheer as well. They let off flares, but nobody responded. Uh, and when they didn't have any flares anymore to attract attention, because they were taking on water by this stage, they'd cut their engines. That unfortunately cut the bilge pump, so they were taking on water. Um, and so they lit a towel. Somebody decided to light a towel with um, engine fuel, with, with um, petrol. But there was a trail of it. They dripped a trail of it along the deck. So one side of the boat caught fire. Um, and of course, everybody ran to the other side of the boat to get away from the flames. And the boat tipped over. And at, just at that moment, the women and children had gone down below deck um, to dress up for their arrival in Europe, to change their clothes. Um, and there were pitiful details, which I did put in the book. Uh, the children, many of the children were found with, uh, drowned, obviously, no children survived, um, with new patent leather shoes on, with, which had been saved for this big arrival uh, into Europe. So I had the whole guilt of cutting out the migrants. This was about, obviously, raising awareness, and I'd taken them out. Um, but hopefully those voices do scream out of, of the book, um, but I wanted us to discover who the migrants were, just as the optician did. The optician didn't know where Eritrea was, you know. It's an old Italian colony. He, colony. he vaguely knew that, but didn't know anything about it. Um, so we discover, because I don't know how many people know a great deal about Eritrea now. It's a military dictatorship. That's why everybody flees. Women as well as men are conscripted at, at the age of 16, and you're conscripted for life. Um, it, the book, um, I was very lucky, made a very big impact uh, in France. It's now in seven, uh, in five languages now, and it's coming into Slovakian and Norwegian later this year. Um, and it, Waterstones picked up on it, um, and it was their book of the month in November, and it raised £56,000 for Oxfam. 
which the optician himself has said has given meaning to his story. Um, I think it's the, the one thing he says which has really helped uh, them all, that they've realised that by telling this terribly painful story for them, it has actually gone back into the, uh, to help the people they helped. Um, it was uh, named Book of the Year by the tablet. It was one of the Financial Times' best uh, uh, political books of last year, which was interesting because that they called it a, a political book. In a sense, of course, it's very political, deeply political. In another sense, it's completely apolitical. Um, we never know how the optician votes. Um, there's no moral... It's a parable, it's a modern-day parable in many ways, but there's no moral to the end of the story, there's no overt mo moral. There's no Hollywood ending either. The optician doesn't uh, suddenly throw off his old life and close his shop and join a search and rescue mission for the rest of his life. He doesn't find Jesus, he remains an atheist. He just goes back to work, albeit with his eyes wide open. And I think the message that he was trying to uh, give in telling his story, and that I certainly was trying to put out for him, was that it doesn't really matter what your views are on immigration. You can be pro-immigration, you can be anti-immigration. That doesn't matter. You can vote right, you can vote left. What matters is how can we close our eyes to the fact that so many people, 14 people a day last year, are drowning on Europe's doorstep. And as he said in that report, it's still happening. Um, I think as a journalist, obviously our job is to make people pay attention to things that, you know, we witness stuff, that's what we do, we go to witness and tell other people, tell the world what we have witnessed, to tell the truth about what we've seen. Um, we obviously need to stay impartial in that world, but to make people aware uh, of the truth of what we witness. I'll never ever apologise um, for reporting difficult truths um, and for really pulling people to see things that they didn't want to see, like the migration crisis with this series. People had switched off to it, and I think it is our duty as journalists to pull people and to see the things that um, we think are important. Um, it's a sort of way, I suppose, as a journalist, of saying, look, you know, have you seen this? Look over here. Come and have a look at this. Have you seen this? But as a writer, we can be much more manipulative, obviously, um, much more direct. We can go a little bit further and to actively prick the conscience. Um, you know, that's what I was trying to do with the book, is prick our collective um, conscience um, by using devices that we'd never use in journalism, just that one voice, just that, you know, and, and manipulating the way we see it, obviously, and blurring that fact and fiction. Um, I mentioned at the beginning some of the people uh, in the series, like The Carpenter, like The Gravedigger, they all have cameo appearances. Now, the optician of Lampedusa doesn't actually know them. Actually, he does probably know the, the Carpenter, although they live in such different worlds. The Carpenter's terribly religious, uh, the uh, optician's not a churchgoer at all. They make cameo appearances, and I used my own journalistic, um, you know, what I'd seen for a year and a half reporting Sicily and Italy, my own observations, and put those um, into the book. But I think, you know, our job as journalists, as I said, obviously we need to stick to facts, yes, but I think we need still in our journalistic work to think of the fact that we are telling stories. Stories not in the sense untrue. It's interesting, isn't it? In English, you, we use the word story for a news report. You know, I'll walk into the newsroom and my editor will say, what story are you working on today? And you would never do that in French, for example. You know, that would mean it's fiction. Um, and 
uh, we, we blur those two things. I think we have quite a background in British journalism of going behind the headlines. You know, we're always searching for those bigger stories behind the headlines. And that is the kind of journalism I'm particularly uh, interested in. I think telling those stories brings the news home hard. Um, and perhaps, you, you know, if we tell the, the right stories in the right way, uh, we really can change as journalists, as storytellers, people's view and pe people's opinions. And I'll just finish by telling you that um, my French editor of this book is uh, half Chinese. Her father is Chinese French. Um, and her grandmother, who is from the other side of the family, is very white French and lives in Versailles in a very nice part uh, of France where it's all very nice and it's very white gloves and nice handbags and, you know, people are very nice to one another. And uh, she wasn't best pleased when her daughter married a, a Chinese man. And as her uh, granddaughter says, who loves her very dearly, she's bordering on the racist. And she certainly wasn't interested in the migration crisis at all. And her granddaughter, my editor, bought her this book and said, hey, have a look at this one. And she said, well, I don't think that's my cup of tea, but I'll read it anyway. She read it, sniffed and said... This well, there might be something in that. <laughs> a couple of weeks later, uh, uh, they were evacuating the Calais camp, the jungle, and they were setting up refugee, temporary refugee centres, and one of those was just on the outskirts of Versailles. And the mayors of all the local um, uh, arrondissements came and put notices through the door saying, write to your MP, we can't have this here in Versailles, we don't want this, write to your MP. And she found, um, it had got a very good write-up, it had been the book of the week in the, uh, the Figaro magazine, uh, the Figaro newspaper, and she had cut that out, uh, she cut it out, she took her copy of the book, and on a little postcard, she just wrote the word, think again, and stuffed it um, through her mayor's office door. That's how we can change things, you know, it's one person, but uh, it counts. So. Thank you.